Well, good morning, everyone. Everybody doing well? 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 (laughs) I don't know if we're doing well. Well, awesome. We're going to jump in to um, a bit of a new, uh, well, not a bit of one, a new series for a bit of time um, as we work towards the holiday season, which is very much ramping up um, and speeding towards us. Um, But for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be working uh, through a series that I've titled The Art of Doing Good. And today, we're going to deal with some concepts. Uh, So if you're a note taker, these, uh, these ideas, these concepts are going to help as we move through everything. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there first. First Peter 3, 10 through 12. Um, here's what Peter says, and he's quoting uh, the Psalms in Psalm 34 when he says this. He says, For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Again, Peter is quoting uh, the psalmist in Psalm 34, 12 through 16, and in doing this, he's actually emphasizing the idea that believers are called to be a blessing to the world. This is our mission, this is our goal, this is what we're supposed to be about. Uh, There is another point, though, that I believe we can see here, it seems to be true here, uh, but you, of course, can weigh that for yourselves, and that is the idea that in living the words of this psalm with, um, um, in living the words of this psalm with patience, the world sees our good deeds Uh, and gradually undergoes a change. So the concept that I'm throwing out there is that by us walking in patience, the world begins to actually transform and change because they see people who walk counterculturally. They see a group of people that don't get bothered by the chaos, that, that I've said this a thousand times, that, that continue to hold the direction even in the midst of a crazy storm. For example, in the face of injustice, we actually can endure in such a way as to uphold the values of justice, um, not through compromise to the culture, but simply through a patient enduring, right? There, there, is, there are a couple of ways that we can handle this. Um, we, could, uh, we could impatiently endure, and we could just jump on our on our high horses and complain all the time about the culture and how the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket. And I'm sure we all play a part in that at some point, right? Um, we could impatiently endure and, and that is go through the process, but we are, uh, we're constantly uh, throwing shade at the world or at the, at the situations around us. When I think the right thing to do is actually to, to simply... Um, not compromise, but know that God is bringing about transformation and change. In the end, in all of life, we have to remember that justice is the Lord's, and he will bring it about. Now, how many of you would agree you think God is slow? (laughs) You're not going to get struck with a lightning bolt because you raised your hand with me right now, right? See? 
See? Anyway, I'm testing him. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> right. Um, but the point is, is that we, we're, uh, it, it's okay, um, it's okay to see God in the weird lights that we see him in for this reason. We are finite and he knows it right? He's not shocked that people with little vision and little sight can't see him perfectly. Like, is this, is this complicated? <laughs> and yet we're so worried that God's like, oh crap, I'm being irreverent here and God's going to strike me dead. No. He just, he wants to hear your thought. Read the book of Job. You'll hear a lot of people's thoughts of God. And God's, God's fine, right? There was a quote that I had, uh, kind of wrestled with this week from George Bernard Shaw, who said, two things define you, uh, your patience when you have nothing, and your attitude when you have everything. And so that first part is very true of what we're talking about. It's our patience when we have nothing. It's our patience when the culture is not shifting. It's our patience when justice is not being enacted. This is important for us to walk patiently through these ideas. But here is the idea that we come to in 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12. What we come to is that we are a people who ought to desire, ought to love good, okay? And we're responsible, we're a people that are supposed to be bringing that good into the world. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17 says this, it says, learn to do good, learn to do good. How many of you know why that says that, besides the contextual reality that Israel was a pain in the neck at the time? We have to learn to do good because we don't know inherently. We're, we're, not, we're not a people who just, we just get it, right? We need to be taught all of the different dynamics and aspects of good, and there's a lot of them. I could go all day just on the subject of what would it mean to do good to your spouse? We could spend all day talking about that. We could talk about it on a meta level. We could talk about it on, on small levels. We, could, we can go all over the place just on that. We need to learn. And none of us are so well learned that we understand all things. So, so Isaiah says, learn to do good. And then he explains some of what that entails. Seek justice. You want to know what good is. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. That's actually part of good, by the way, church. It is, it's not noble or good to merely watch chaos tear the world apart. It's also not good if we jump in the place of God and try to fix it all because we think we're, <laughs> I don't know what we think we are, right? <laughs> Stronger and cooler than he is, I, I don't know, right? But it's, it's not noble to do either of these things. So, so the scripture is clear that if we want to understand what good is, it would be to seek justice. We should seek it. To reprove the ruthless. We should reprove the ruthless. We should defend the orphan. We should plead for the widow. This all sounds familiar for those who know the New Testament because James is echoing this very idea when he says this is what true and undefiled religion is, to take care of the widow and the orphan and the poor. And by the way, that itself is not an exhaustive list of what true and undefiled religion is. Time out that it's really hard to have absurdly long eyelashes, I'm sorry. Gosh. I hate it. They, all they do is brush my glasses and then get them oily. Anyway, there's my complaint for the day. Okay, First Timothy, that won't be my only complaint for the day. Anyway, so 
So, uh, yeah, patience, patience, patience. I don't like it. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 18. Paul tells Timothy to instruct them to do good and to be rich in good works. Now, if we put everything together that we've, we've walked through so far... We have to realize that if you desire good, you're, you're a Christian. That's what, that's what it means to be a Christian. You desire good and, and to see good days, and, and you have a responsibility to, to, to bring about that good. In Isaiah, it tells us we've got to learn to do good, and then it teaches an expanded definition of what good is, and not just good to me, but good to others. And then First Timothy says that uh, Paul instructs Timothy to instruct them to do good. That actually is a responsibility of a teacher or a preacher. It's a responsibility of any Christian that is going to sharpen the other. We've got to remember that we're called to instruct one another to good. And then he says, instruct them to do good and to be rich in good works. Please understand, it's not just, hey, I did a good thing here. It's literally to be rich in good works. So, so what does it mean to be rich? Somebody, I guess we would say, that has abundance. So what does it be to be rich in good works? To be abundant in good works, not this little adage that says, I'm a, I'm a good person. I do some good things. No, 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 be rich in good deeds, right? Let's pour those good deeds out. Jesus goes on to tell us that uh, doing good isn't just for those who love us either. Uh, in other words, the direction that we are flowing these good deeds is not just towards cool people that we like, okay? We've got to do this in every direction possible. Luke six twenty seven says, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. So rich in good deeds... We're supposed to do good. We need to be taught how to do good. We need to be instructed on what that good is. And now we're supposed to take that stuff to the people who are our enemies. You guys ready for that? Sounds awesome, right? You're like, I'll show him good. <laughs> Fist upside the head, I'll show him good, right? No, that's not the good we're talking about, right? And so, so it is good, though, please understand this, if you tie Isaiah in with what Jesus said, and good is to seek justice and to reprove the ruthless, it is doing good to someone to reprove them if they're ruthless. It doesn't mean off with their head, but it just means reprove them, right? And so this is all this like large concept of doing good. And so Jesus says, I want you to do good even to those who hate you. And then in verse 33, he asks, if you are good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Let me make sure you understand the, the word there or the phrase there. If you do good, and Jesus would imply this idea, if you do good merely to those who do good to you, because you are to do good to them. But if that's the only people you do good, how are you different than anybody else? And here's what he goes on to use this as an example. He says, sinners do the same. This is a fun concept for a lot of my Reformed friends that they have to take into consideration that just because we uh, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it does not imply in any way that we cannot do good. Sinners do good all the time. It's an absolute fact, and Jesus said it. The problem is, why are we doing good? What is our motivation? What is the end goal of any of that good? And what's the distinction between our good and the rest of the world's good? Do we actually do good more than just to each other? Do we actually exhibit that good or express that good outward? We should, even to those who hate us. 
Uh, King Solomon establishes the idea in a more poetic way, in a more philosophical way, which is just truly fascinating to me. He says that God has made everything appropriate in its time. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting at verse 11. God has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. That's you and I. He set eternity in mankind's heart. Yet, so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Want me to interpret that phrase for you? Even though he has put eternity in your heart, you're never going to actually figure the whole meaning of it out. (laughs) It's so fascinating to me because we love to discover the meaning of life. We want to figure out why and and how and, and what and all of these things. We want to discover all that. And the scripture literally communicates to us, God has put it in our hearts in such a way that you aren't going to figure it out. You're going, that sounds dumb, (laughs) right? (laughs) Lord, you should probably just give us a better book, a cheat code. I want to see what's happening here. He's like, nope. And there's a reason why no is the answer because there there are some times, there are some things that we are better better off not knowing, right? Do you know that in the garden, we were told to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And we're like, why is that? Isn't it good to know good from evil as you need to know it? Yes. It's good to know it as you need to know it. But the second you ingest everything all at once, you're welcoming chaos because you don't know what to do with all that information. Some people ask me what my, um, what my philosophy is on teaching my kids the Bible stories, uh, and my philosophy is that if they are ready for a certain lesson, then I will teach them that lesson. You're not being noble in reading uh, absurdly graphic and destructive stories to your children when they're really young just because, well, you're reading the Bible. (laughs) That, That can be just a stupid way to approach it, okay? What you ought to do is understand what they're prepared for, what questions they might be able to ask, what they might be able to do with the information you give them, right? If you throw, if you throw sexual information, so first of all, this is just Nathan on a hobby horse. If you, or not on a hobby horse, on a soapbox, but if you, everybody went, woohoo, this is fun. Anyway, <laughs> oh Lord. Anyway, so if, if you, we already have a problem in our culture where we look at the we look at the world saying, stop feeding inappropriate information to our children, right? Like, we, are, we already don't like this idea. And then we think because it's in the Bible, then it's okay. No. Stop feeding your children uh, highly sexualized information before it's time. Why? They don't know what to do with it. They have no clue. And here's the scary thing that I have found when it comes to teaching children Bible stories or parents in particular teaching children Bible stories. The parents don't know what to do with the stories already. So the kid's going, what? And the parent's like, I don't know either. Let's figure it out as two collective five-year-olds. We'll figure, (laughs) no, this is not healthy, right? This is not healthy. So, 
So there's a lot of information, and we've got to be very careful with this. I've, I've dismounted from my soapbox for now. But, but it's really important that you give the information as they need it, because we don't need all the information. So Solomon uh, says that, that there is a way in which you will not understand everything. It's okay. But here is where I want to go with this passage from Ecclesiastes. He says, I know that there is nothing better for them, that is mankind, than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Do you, do you know what has just been told that is the best thing for us to do? Gratitude and good. These are the best things for us to do. Don't miss both, though, right? Like you, you, It's not just to do good. It's also to be grateful, right? And so it, uh, he says, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice to be grateful, and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is a gift of God. It's not the labor that's the gift of God, by the way, right? It's to see good in all that you do. Let me highlight something about eternity in this, um, in this passage. Eternity uh, is um, it's, it's an interesting concept that simply means forever in a general sense, all of us have a desire to understand uh, how we fit into the plan of life. But in Ecclesiastes, this Hebrew word olam often occurs in passages to contrast with the brevity of human life. So it's like you want to know everything, but you're, you're just a spark. You know, you're just a, a brief flame inside of all of this. So in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, verse 4, um, generations come and go. But the earth, Olam, the earth remains forever. That's kind of humbling, isn't it? You go, guess who we are? One more collection of people that will die and go into the ground, but the earth's not going anywhere, right? It's just going to continue on. That's a pretty powerful and humbling reality. In chapter 2, verse 16, uh, and in chapter 9, verse 6, death prevents people from being remembered, olam, forever. Death prevents people from being remembered forever. Now, this is an interesting point that I, that I love to think about because I... Maybe, maybe it's the particular wiring that I have, but I do believe that this is natural for, for most people. And that is we wonder about the legacy we'll leave. We wonder about the, the, the being remembered in some, some capacity. And I think the desire to be remembered is rooted similarly in the desire to understand all things. But... Uh, part of being finite is we can't understand all things, and part of the curse, part of death, is to rob us of that reality. We will, no one in this world will ever be fully remembered. Why? Because death comes for all. It's a very interesting idea. So it makes me realize that I don't have to live to be remembered. I actually am better served by accepting a premise and that is, death will erase my memory. I mean, all things erase my memory, but I'm talking about death will erase the memory of me. That's a better way to say it, okay? So um, if you're pursuing that, fine, I get why you pursue it. I get, the, I get the desire. I have the same one. But remember that death is, uh, the death actually prevents people from being remembered, according to Solomon. 
In chapter 12, verse 5, death is also the eternal, the olam, home of humanity. So now we have, we're humbled by the fact that um, we don't know everything. We're humbled by the fact that um, the earth is going to remain forever and that we're going to pass away. We're humbled by the fact that we're not going to be remembered. Now we're humbled by the fact that uh, death is actually the destination for us right now. Death is the destination. Now, what is so significant, again, about Jesus and the resurrection when you understand that this is the outlook on all of life apart from him? The beauty is that with resurrection, death is not the end. You see the point? So this is a very beautiful thing. We haven't gotten, Solomon hasn't gotten to that part in the story. But, but nonetheless, it's humbling everything that he's sharing. So just a little further than we started reading in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 14, Solomon declares that God's work alone is what lasts olam forever. Now, this presents us a really important idea as well, and that is people ask, why are Christians, why do people of faith, why do people, you know, that believe in Yahweh, why do we care about telling these stories? Uh, hopefully the reason becomes bigger than just because we believe them. I hope that eventually we come to the place because it's actually part of God's truth that emanates through the cosmos that he alone will be remembered. People will never stop talking about his name. It wouldn't matter how many atheists, how many uh, agnostics, how many questions and doubts and, and, and confusing things are presented in the world. It doesn't matter how many come. The scripture is clear. The only thing that will actually last forever is the work of God alone. I love that. It makes me realize that the whole gospel isn't hinged on Nathan sharing it with everybody, although I have a responsibility and can't get out of it, right? We all are called to go into the world in whatever capacity and share the gospel. So we all have this, but I love the truth that God's name and God's work and God's truth is never going to fade. It will last forever. Uh, here, it most likely refers in, in uh, this idea of forever in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. It most likely refers just to that desire to understand the olam, the eternal nature of God's work. But the gift of God has, given, has been given in the midst of all of this, and that is God gave us a desire to understand forever, and he gave us the ability to do good, and in doing that good, we are rewarded. So this leads to the point or the kind of foundation for this little series that we're going to be going into. And, and what we're going to be talking about, what we're going to be engaging with over the next few weeks is, again, this art of doing good. But there's, there's a lot to the art of doing good. Okay, let me stop and say that my job is to teach you. My job is to learn and to communicate what I'm learning. That doesn't mean what I am teaching is the only thing to be taught. But what I am saying is that, that that's the angle from which I'm coming at it. And in doing that, I have to look at doing good from a, a uh, more holistic way. I have to look at doing good from a physical perspective. I have to look at doing good from, uh, um, from a 
cognitive perspective, an internal perspective. I have to look at doing good from a psychological perspective. We have to look at doing good in various, uh, in various relationships because here's, here's why. If we don't look at doing good in a broader way, I think we miss a whole lot of opportunities to do good. I think we're consumed with doing good means go to church. Doing good means I went and participated in an outreach where I fed the poor. Great, this, this is part of good, right? This is part of good. But you have a lot of good that you can do each and every day. And by the way, you're supposed to be rich in good works. And if the only good works, if the only good that you can ever produce, if the only uh, doing good that you know the art of is the religious good that happens on Sunday morning or during an event, you're going to feel like you're not doing anything. So, show of hands, how many of you struggle to feel like you don't really put too much good into the world, you just feel like you don't know what to do? How many would say that's true? Look at that. That's amazing. Because if, if we're honest, we look at it and we go, okay, I get the kind of the meta good things, but I don't get these small everyday things. So what we're going to do first, and we'll do this today, uh, again, these are the concepts, so I'm going to be establishing some groundwork here, and then we're going to go through it piece by piece. It's going to take us a little bit of time, not, it's not going to be a Genesis series by any means, but, but we're, going to, we're going to be working through this. So we began today by talking about um, three things that are built into us uh, with regard to motivation, they're built into us. And they are the things that drive us. And we're just going to call these, these, thing, these three things the three drives, okay? Now, uh, psychology has accepted the, the, the first two, which would be uh, an aggressive drive and a pleasure drive. And every one of you accepts it too because you've experienced it every day of your life. But the third drive, it's going to be an interesting one, is what uh, is called a generative drive. And we're going to talk about that in more detail as it goes. So I'll start by defining things. But uh, I want you to know that these drives are both determined and they are deterministic. And what I mean by that is, is that they, these drives are different in different people. It's just determined that way. How many of you know somebody that's just far more aggressive than you are? Right? Right? How many of those people happen to be the husbands of the wives right there? Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Right? That, that, wait a minute. Maybe it's the opposite. <laughs> Barney's like, holy crap. Anyway, yeah. You should see how aggressive she is. Anyway, so, so we've, got, we've got aggressive drive, and everybody knows this, but we know that it's determined. We know that there are certain things we're wired for. This is what we might call nature versus nurture, okay? Um, so all of these things are there. But each one of these drives is deterministic in this way. It's going to determine the effect on your world, how you work in it, how you drive in things. So uh, I'll give you examples as we go through this, but you will see that each one of these drives will affect change in your world. And here is the big premise that I want you to take away, and that is when these drives are healthy and these are hardwired into us, the result is good in the world. And the good in the world is the goal that God had for you. And that's what he wants for you. And when these drives are actually put through a lens of redemption, then we actually start to see affected change in the world that is for a kingdom purpose and not just for Nathan's betterment or for yours, okay? 
So we're going to keep walking through this piece by piece. The first one is aggressive drive. So again, if you're, if you're going to take notes, write this down, aggressive drive. And I'm going to also give you another title for it because aggression uh, has all kinds of baggage that comes with it. Aggressive drive can also be, in its healthy form, called the proactive drive. A proactive drive, okay? So um, this defined, aggressive drive or proactive drive defined would be having a strong sense of agency and then doing something with it, right? Having a strong sense of agency and actually acting in it, acting on it. Um, Too little aggressive drive plays out a certain way, and too much aggressive drive plays out a certain way, but both, too little and too much, stop the good that you want to do. They will. They'll stop the good that you're, you're hoping to see in the world. So, so too little can look like a person who doesn't uh, bring themselves, I guess you would say, bring themselves to bear on the world. So how many of you met somebody, that you've met somebody, maybe you're this person, where you, you just don't have it in you to take any hills or any mountains, you're like, it's not going to make any difference. I don't really care. It's, it's all whatever. How many of you feel that way? Have you know somebody that way? Yeah. Okay. So this would be too low of an aggressive drive. It's just too, you're, maybe you've given up. There's trauma that's attached to it. There's all kinds of things that, that, that precede these kinds of things. Uh, and we'll be talking about those in subsequent weeks, right? So this is a person too little is a person who doesn't bring themselves to bear on the world. Sometimes this can be a result of a lack of understanding or education. And so when it comes to being aggressive for the kingdom of God, maybe you don't bring yourself to bear inside of the world for the kingdom of God solely because you don't feel you have anything to offer. Many people feel this way, right? Maybe you don't train your children, like I mentioned in the beginning, in the way they should go because you're like, I don't even understand these stupid stories to begin with. So I don't know how I'm supposed to teach them right? You guys are like, he just says the weirdest stuff. Yeah, I'm just saying what you're all thinking. Anyway, right? So, so you, don't, you don't know. So you, you don't bring yourself to bear in the world around you. Too much, though, too much aggressive drive becomes actual aggression, right? Um, uh, in personality profiles, they ta- often talk about whether or not somebody is, um, Steph, is it aggressive and something else, is it aggressive? People are, like, you can rate their personality and then maybe they're high on aggression. Is that one? Do what? Assertive. Assertive. And what's the other one? Turbulent. <laughs> turbulent is really in line with what we're talking about with aggression, right? So how many of you know somebody who's turbulent? Raise your hand. Okay, hold on a second. How many of you know me? Okay, you know, so anyway, I'm sorry. I really, really am, I promise. So too much actual aggression uh, is, is when this aggressive drive is too high, right? Um, so um, you might have this attitude if your aggressive drive is too high. Uh, I want something, and nobody seems to be doing what it is that I want, so I'll do it myself or I'll take it myself. Yeah, you felt that? It's a common thing, right? So this can be a manifestation of too high of a drive. The Bible talks about this in a similar way, which I would, I would connect then to a moral sense, um, in that uh, selfish ambition, as the Bible talks about, would be a wrong thing. So you can be ambitious. That's a healthy, aggressive drive. But you can also be selfishly ambitious, and that is not a healthy 
aggressive drive. That's too much, right? A correct biblical drive would look like uh, Jesus' definition of meekness or Jesus' idea of meekness in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to play a clip for you here real quick from Jordan Peterson that I find fascinating, and then I'll talk about it um, after we watch it. There's a big difference between letting people do something for themselves and saying men should be dangerous. By dangerous, that implies I should be ready to threaten someone, to hurt somebody. No, you should be capable of it, but that doesn't mean you should use it. There's nothing to you otherwise. Like if you're not a formidable force, there's, not, there's no morality in your self-control. If you're incapable of violence, not being violent isn't a virtue. People who teach martial arts know this full well, right? If you learn a martial art, you learn to be dangerous, but simultaneously you learn to control it. Both of those come together. And the combination of that capacity for danger and the capacity for control is what brings about the virtue. Otherwise, you confuse weakness with, with moral virtue. I'm harmless, therefore I'm good. It's like, no. That isn't how it works. That isn't how it works at all. If you're harmless, you're just weak. And if you're weak, you're not going to be good. You can't be, because it takes strength to be good. It's very difficult to be good. What he's talking about is a balanced, aggressive drive, right? It's not too little that you're weak, right? And it's not too much that you don't know self-control. You just start cutting heads or whatever we might want to say, right? This is, this is where we have a problem. And so um, it is really important that we understand these drives are there and they result in good. Do you, do you, did you catch how many times he referred to good in the world in that, in that small clip? He talks about it a lot because here's the point. If you are not able to stop evil, you can't then claim you're just being um, you're just being passive or meek or you're just being good because good doesn't do any kind of aggressive thing. That's not true. Good is aggressive when it's necessary. Amen. This is why we need better philosophies about how to protect our families and how to protect our communities and how to protect our country and all of these other things. It is it is absolutely silly to have a short-sighted view of, uh, of aggression that, that says it's always bad um, and then somehow claim that you're being good because you've let somebody hurt the people you love. That's silliness. It's just silly, okay? So the first one is aggressive drive. Every one of us has it, and it is designed to bring about good in the world. Now, I've not told you what that good will look like in particular, but uh, in specific, but we will talk about that in the subsequent weeks. The second one is the pleasure drive, and this one's a tricky one. This one's a very tricky one. Uh, pleasure drive would be defined as um, a drive for safety, a drive for peace, a drive for satisfaction, Okay, uh, this doesn't mean that we are predisposed to a kind of hedonism, though, right? So pleasure drive doesn't mean sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Like that—that's not what this is all about. Um, so that can be an expression of too high of a pleasure drive, uh, but this drive is there nonetheless. And by the way, when you when you seek pleasure, why do you seek pleasure? Because it feels. Good. Oh, there's that word, right? So we're, this is all about good, and God has even made us to, to uh, enjoy the good that is part of our life. 
Solomon told us in Ecclesiastes, it's part of this design. I think that's beautiful if it's, uh, if it's understood correctly, right? So we have, um, we have this, desire or this uh, desire or this drive for safety, peace, and satisfaction. Pleasure drive does involve things like sex and romance and, and those kinds of things, um, but in their right order, okay? So too little drive means uh, a lack of motivation, a lack of motivation to, to seek any of these things uh, in any way, right? You don't care enough for peace. You don't care enough for anything. This is, this is uh, often displayed as a, a form of apathy. It's, it's, it's common. People do it, and especially in today's generation. It's, it's very common, right? So a lack of motivation. Too much does result in the whole sex, drugs, and rock and roll, the whole kind of hedonistic approach to things. Uh, one's own pleasure becomes more important than anyone else's good, uh, it, uh, as a matter of fact, to the exclusion and even the detriment of another person's good. Because all you care about is being pleased, 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 okay? But guess what? These drives are going in you no matter what. And in the church, we need to talk about them in honest ways and not try to hide them away. How many adults do we have in the room and it's 18 and older? Raise your hand. How many of you know what sex is? <laughs> I just, I think it's funny, right? How many of you know it's not wrong to enjoy this? Right? How many of you know the church is scared to death of talking about it? What the hell? I don't understand. I, it doesn't, this does not make any sense. I don't know why we're so scared of hard issues. I think it's because we don't know what we're talking about. Like, oh, I got a plan. Don't, I don't know what it is, but I got a plan, right? You know, we, don't, we just don't know what we're doing, okay? We've got to stop being afraid of it. We've got to start realizing that we're aggressive people in a right way. We're, we're pleasure-seeking people in a right way. And then last but not least, we are a people who um, should have and do have a generative drive. And this is defined as a drive that includes behaviors and choices that can have pleasure and aggression in them, but they go beyond self. It is a drive to make the world a better place. It's a drive to make your home a better place. It's a drive to make your church and your community a better place. It's a, it's a drive that is generating things in the world. Does that make sense? Okay, so uh, we, I don't know that you can have too much of this. I know that you can have too little. I know that you can just say, I don't want to generate anything. I don't care. It's all about me and not about anybody else. But I don't think you can have too much. Unless, potentially, you are clueless to certain responsibilities while you're generating good in the world. And so what I would mean by that is that you're so busy helping at the soup kitchen that your family is neglected. I would say the problem is you've got a high generative drive to see something change, but you actually don't have a good uh, pleasure drive, at least not for other people, okay? Does that make sense? So generative drive is a big deal, and so we are, we are understanding a drive that is constructive, and it is to build goodness in the world. Now, we go all the way back to all these scriptures that I read in the beginning, and we look at it and we realize... 
We look at it and we realize that, number one, we are, uh, we are a people who are to see good days or we desire to see good days, and God has that planned for us, right? To, to, uh, um, to turn away from evil and to do good. So there's an active sense of this, some, some verbs instead of just nouns of good, right? And, so, and then Isaiah told us that we need to learn to do the good, and then good is defined a bit better, reproving the ruthless and seeking justice and defending the orphan and, and uh, pleading for the widows, and way more than that, okay? And then Paul teaches Timothy, again, to instruct others to do good because we actually need to learn. We, we're not all-knowing, okay? And so we're, we're not just supposed to be instructed in it, but to be instructed to be rich in it. So we've got a lot that is flowing out of us. Solomon is giving us uh, ideas on this concept of being, um, of being good, that God actually has it as a gift for us to see the rewards of the good inside of our life, right? And, and so all of this is affected by these three drives, and these three drives are greatly affected by a myriad of other things, and that's where we're going to go next week. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about why these drives, especially their, um, uh, their objective of doing good, is either on or off uh, in functioning well in your life. So we're going to talk about why your pleasure drive might be off and why your pleasure drive might be too much, um, why your uh, aggressive drive could be either or, right? Why you don't even feel the need to have a generative drive at times. Maybe that's the struggle you're having. We're going to talk about why these get off because what I need to do as a pastor and what we need to do as Christians is start to think about these concepts in, in extremely real ways and not just think about them through the lens of the story of another person, okay? Joseph did it this way. That's fine. I've never been sold into slavery. I don't know what to do in this situation. So what do pastors do? What does any good teacher do? They're, they're like, okay, well, let me give you an example of how that might apply in your world. Okay, so let's just cut out the middleman, and let's just talk about the principles, and then we're going to dig into how they apply to you. We're going to be looking at this again through the lens of, of marriage. We're going to look at this through the lens of friendship. We're going to look at this through the lens of what it means to be in the workplace and, and have these different drives functioning at all times. We're going to look at this through the lens of friendship. We're going to look at this through all of these different ways. And we're going to get to the core of things. And that is that when this, I told you this a couple of weeks ago, when the function and the, um, when the function and the identity of self are off, when you don't know what you really are, one made in the image of God, one designed to do good and to bring about good into the world, when you don't know what you actually are or how it's supposed to function, these drives will always be out of whack. They will. Or at best, it'll be like rolling, rolling dice, right? You're like, ooh, today I was lucky. I did good. How many of you who are married have good weeks where everyone's pleasure drive is, is acceptable? How many of you have it where it's way off? One's here, one's there, it's this way, it's that way. Yeah. We need to not play the game in marriage, not play the game in friendship, not play the game in our workplace that is a game of chance. Which, Nathan, you're going to get today. That's no fun. What should happen is a self-controlled version of all of us. One who knows who we are, knows what we're supposed to do, 
and can actually function in it properly. Amen? Okay, so we will talk about those things as we go through this. What this has opened opportunity, learning these things and growing in these things. Uh, what it has done for me is opened opportunity to be able to sit with people, as I do often, sit with people and um, coach them through ideas like this. If what I want to do today um, for you is I want you to be praying about this. <clears throat> I'm going to give you my email address. Uh, and I want you to email me. I specifically want you to email me. But I want you to email me uh, if there is something that you want to work on with regard to the things that we're going to learn over the next several weeks. Because the objective, the idea of coaching people and, and discipling people in how to do these things and to operate in themselves is one of the key things in my life that I see as a generative drive idea for me, right? It is to sit with people, to walk with people through these issues and show them, here's how you could do it. Here's how this is different for you. Uh, not different as in the rules don't apply, different for you in the application of things, okay? So if you want to talk about these things, if you want to sit down, um, this is all part of something that uh, Steph and I are building and trying to create because this is the kind of help that I really do see people need in their life that is practical, it's real, it's, it's genuinely able to set people on a good path in their Christian life and in their personal lives. Amen? Okay. We're going to pray. We're going to have the teams come up. Here's my email address, by the way. Nathan, N-A-T-H-A-N, Frankhauser, holy cow, F-R-A-N-C-K, because we added extra German in there, C-K-H-A-U-S-E-R at gmail.com. Nathan Frankhauser at gmail.com. All one giant, giant 